Once again, we have a wonderful opportunity to come together and to look into the Word of God and hear from Him. And this morning, we are doing something a little bit different. We're moving away from our verse-by-verse study of the book of Daniel for a very special occasion. I'm going to be speaking to you about God's will and the sexual revolution. Here's why. According to a new Canadian law, as of January 8th, 2022, Bill C-4 went into effect that criminalizes, among other things, quote, causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy. The preamble of this bill states that it is a myth to believe that, quote, heterosexuality, cisgender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions, end quote. Said differently, God's design for sexuality and for marriage is not only a myth, but it is now in Canada illegal to preach about it, to counsel others concerning it, and to promote it in any way. The bill defines conversion therapy as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to the person at birth. They go on to say, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including by providing conversion therapy to that other person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than five years. Similarly, they go on to say, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. So my friends, today, many faithful pastors all over Canada and many pastors all over the United States are standing together in solidarity against the law of man in an effort to preach the law of God. We will not bow to any authority that defies the authority of the one true God. Therefore, this morning, with all of these other pastors, I'll be preaching about God's will and the sexual revolution. May I remind you that all sinners, myself included, need the grace of God 
and it is only available through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's only through the gospel that sinners are forgiven and transformed so that they can become like Christ and eventually enter into the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9, Paul clearly articulates why we must speak the truth and why we cannot be silenced. Here's what he says. Or do you not know that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. My friends, as Christians, we are called to rescue men and women from Satan's lies and from this worldly system that God allows him to rule temporarily. And sometimes this requires civil disobedience. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we read about how we are to do this. Because believe me, this is not something that we enjoy. And our descent must be bold, but it must never be haughty. And it must be kind. There in that passage we read, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, The Canadian level of militant unbelief and hostility towards the truth of biblical Christianity is is nothing new. To be sure, criminalizing biblical morality has been gaining momentum uh, down through the years uh, here in the United States. We see this especially through the efforts of, of both theological and political liberalism, both of which are metastasizing corruptions that destroy societies, destroy families, and ultimately damn souls. John MacArthur said, quote, in 2012, California passed Senate Bill 1172 banning, quote, gay conversion alongside New York, New Jersey, and Nevada. In doing this, the California government sought to prohibit any correction of an unbiblical view of sexual identity because, quote, California has a compelling interest in protecting the well-being of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. And on August 18th, 2020, MacArthur goes on to say, the Democratic Party declared at the National Convention that it would, quote, ban harmful conversion therapy practices, end quote. 
The Obama administration appointed more than 250 LGBTQ plus people to serve in the government. The Biden administration has promised to increase that number, and they have done so thus far. My friends, make no mistake, there is a war going on right now against the church of Jesus Christ and against the family, against marriage and the family. And this is being waged by the left and their cult of wokeism. Progressive liberal Democrats want to kill unborn and unwanted babies in the womb. They want to destroy the nuclear family with their LGBTQ agenda. They want to tell parents that they have no say in their child's education and that we need to leave it to the educators, leave it to the school boards so that they can have free reign to teach critical race theory and their woke indoctrination. They even want to eliminate the rights of parents to interfere with the child's choice of gender, including hormone therapy and even surgery. By the way, biological gender cannot be changed. It is fixed at the moment of conception in a person's DNA. And any kind of gender change is external at best and physical mutilation at worst. And now we have a political party that's in power that is cramming these vile ideologies down the throats of its citizens. It's hard to believe. I was just thinking about this the other day. They've even selected a man who pretends to be a woman as the United States Assistant Secretary of Health. We have a sodomite as our Secretary of Transportation who, along with his husband, adopted two newborn babies. And then he went on a paid two-month maternity leave during an unprecedented supply chain crisis in our country. Folks, you can't make this stuff up. Dear friends, there is no greater proof of man's innate hostility towards the truth of God's word than the staggering immorality that we see in our country today, a post-Christian culture, one that utterly rejects the authority of Scripture. And this is especially true in matters having to do with sexuality, morality, and marriage, and so forth. And despite the clarity of God's righteous standards that are revealed in His Word, the Bible, much of evangelicalism has caved to the pressure of this ungodly mob of the sexual and homosexual and transgender revolution. They refuse to acknowledge what God has done in the past with respect to his judgments on those kinds of lifestyles. They refuse to acknowledge, for example, God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for their great gross immorality of homosexuality. This Forbidden perversion is clearly condemned in Scripture. For example, in Leviticus 18 and verse 22, we read, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. And in verse 29, For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. 
Chapter 20 and verse 13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. And it is this wickedness that ignited God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, as we read in Genesis 14, when, quote, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, Genesis 19:24. We read that even Lot was, quote, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men in Sodom. For by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Second Peter 2 verses 7 and 8. And frankly the heart of every Christian should be likewise tormented over the, the rampant immorality that now defines our culture and now is being promoted in apostate churches that are Christian in name only. Peter described the judgment of God that reduced Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes because of their sexual deviancy in 2 Peter 2.6. He described it as an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And Jude also cited those two cities as examples of the kinds of sexual immorality and perversions of which the imposters he was confronting were accused, writing in Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishments of eternal fire. As I have stated in my latest book, Why America Hates Biblical Christianity, it is appalling to witness the creative yet blasphemous ways the Bible is distorted among many professing Christians in their effort to embrace everything from homosexuality to transgenderism, as if such things are morally acceptable in God's eyes. Worse yet, such blatantly unbiblical positions are boldly touted as being examples of Christian love when just the opposite is true. When the eternal souls of men and women are at stake, there can be no greater act of hatred than to make people comfortable in their sin and thus doom them to God's righteous judgment like the false prophets who, according to Jeremiah 23, verse 14 and 16, strengthened the hand of evildoers so that no one has turned back from his wickedness. All of them have become to me, God says, like Sodom and her inhabitants like Gomorrah. They are leading you into futility. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. So today I would like to address this sexual revolution and its consequences by taking you into the Word of God. The Apostle Paul's words recorded in Romans 1, uh, verses 24 and following, are, are where I would like to take you this morning. And they are among the most sobering and terrifying words in his epistle. 
And here we learn what happens when God rejects man because man has rejected God. It's a terrifying judgment. Here we see the tragic consequences when God removes all restraint and and lets a society indulge its every lust. Here we will see what happens when a culture reaches this stage of depravity where God will gradually allow them to experience the, the terrible miseries of their sinful choices. This is best described as the wrath of divine abandonment, a terrifying fate that can lead to eternal abandonment for those who refuse to repent. To express, to express this, Three times Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over in Romans 1. He uses this phrase in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. And this translates the Greek verb paradidomai, a very strong word meaning to deliver up. And it is used in the New Testament in a judicial sense to refer to one who is handed over to another for judgment. In this context, God delivers up or gives a man over to the folly of his sin, to experience the horrific consequences of that sin that will hopefully bring him to a place of repentance so he will cry out for forgiveness and experience God's saving and transforming grace. And here we discover three progressive stages of this abandonment. Stages not necessarily found in every single individual, but in the collective whole of a culture where these things are magnified, where their rebellion against God is magnified primarily through their gross immorality. And as we will see, each stage becomes progressively worse in its evil and in its consequences. First, we will see that God gives them over to what I would call sordid immorality. And from there, secondly, to shameless homosexuality. And finally, to shocking depravity. So let's look at this first stage, sordid immorality, a violation of God's moral order. Paul describes this first stage of divine abandonment by saying in verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. This speaks of a perversion of God's moral order that limits sexual activity to the union of one man and one woman in the God-ordained covenant of marriage. We read about this in Genesis 2, 23 and 24. We read about it again in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. Paul underscores this principle as well in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, when he says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The Greek term epithemio translated lust, simply denotes the idea of longing for or desiring a specific object. And here in Romans one twenty four, Paul uses the term lust to describe evil cravings, immoral desires, or yearning 
for that which God forbids. Jesus uses the same term in Matthew 5, 28, when he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So lusting after a woman or a man proves a person has already committed adultery in his or her heart. Said differently, lust is a manifestation of an immoral heart rooted in our sinful nature. In fact, James tells us in James chapter 1 and verse 4, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. You see, whenever the object of one's desire is for that which God forbids, the desire itself is sinful. Paul categorizes it as the desire of the flesh in Galatians 5.15. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. I might also add that this refutes the unbiblical notion that same-sex attraction, often referred to as homosexual orientation, is just morally neutral unless it is acted upon as some will argue, because after all, people will say a person just can't help the way they are. But what they fail to understand is that the attraction itself is sinful. Jesus makes it clear that lust is rooted in, quote, their hearts, referring to the governing faculty of a person. The heart is the locus of man's thoughts, of his conscience, of his will, of his emotions, that inner core, that basic nature that really defines who we are as a person. God speaking through Jeremiah says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. And in Matthew 15, Verse 19, Jesus described it this way, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And Paul reminded the unbelievers in Ephesus about this very thing in Ephesus 2, in Ephesians 2, 3, where he says, We too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Referring to you and me, those of us who now know Christ, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what we see biblically is craving impurity leads to moral degradation. Again, back to Romans in verse 1, or Verse 24 of chapter 1, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. So the first stage of divine abandonment is that stage when people reject God and so God just gives them over and lets them indulge their lusts because they have a craving for, as he says here, impurity a term that means uncleanness or filth. This was a term that was used to describe the putrefaction of a corpse or the contents of a grave. 
It was also a, a synonym for sexual immorality. In fact, Paul used it in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 21, where he expressed a concern for those who had sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity. There it is, the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they had practiced. And in Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 19, the unregenerate are described as those who walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So, my friends, when a man persistently rejects God, God will gradually give that person over to carnal cravings for that which he forbids, especially in the realm of sexual immorality. And this is what we see in our culture. And notice the consequence at the end of verse 24, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. You see, when people indulge in these kinds of sins, their bodies are dishonored. An interesting term. It means they are treated shamefully. They're characterized by dishonor, a lack of respect. Now, the immediate context would indicate that Paul had fertility, cult, ritual prostitution, and and habitual sexual contact with them in mind. And all of that, of course, was central to their idolatrous practices. But their immoral worship would have also fueled the innate purience of their depraved heart. In other words, that excessive interest that they have in sexual matters. And then this would, would spawn all manner of gross immorality at every level of society. And this is what we see in our country today. I have to say, there is nothing that makes our society blush anymore. We look at women today, you go down to Walmart or you go to any public place and you see women dressed like trollops. You even see it at times in the church. The more they can show, the better. The tighter, the better. And men undress them as they walk by. This is the culture of immorality that we live in. This is a culture that manifests the depravity of a person's heart. Hosea's Hosea's warning is fitting for many within the ranks of evangelicalism today when he said in Hosea 5.4, their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. And here's why. For a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Beloved, given all of this, it should not surprise us to see the kinds of things that we witness in our political leaders. It should not surprise us to see our streets filled with so-called protesters that are looting and burning buildings. It should not surprise us to see the rapid demise of just common decency and decorum in our society. There is nothing sacred anymore. Not even the sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman. Our country has become a nation of idolatrous sex worshipers. 
and is now experiencing the wrath of divine abandonment. When a nation exchanges the truth of God for a lie, it will be delivered up to that lie to become its slave and ultimately be destroyed by it. That, unfortunately, is what we're witnessing in our country today. God will abandon it first to sordid immorality, again, a violation of God's moral order, and that will give rise to the second stage, stage two, shameless homosexuality, which is an inversion of God's created order. This is the next stage in the progression. It's described in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women, which could be translated literally females, exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. The term degrading in the original language speaks of that which is which is vile, which is um, disgraceful, which is shameful. So God abandons them to the vile affections of homosexuality. Now, once again, in context, this is what happens when individuals exchange the truth of who God is for a lie, many lies. Righteousness will be exchanged for that which is unrighteous. What is pure will be exchanged for what is unclean. Notice Paul's use of the word natural, the natural, which refers to that which is produced by nature, that which is inborn, refers to that which is governed by the instincts of nature. And then he also uses the term function, the natural function, which simply means use. The sexual use of a woman referring to the normal, natural intimacy of sexual intercourse. That is exchanged for that which is unnatural. In other words, against nature. Contrary to instincts that govern our behavior. My, what a judgment that is. And obviously this is speaking of homosexual behavior among women. Unlike sordid immorality, which is a perversion of God. God's intentions for sexual relations, relations, homosexuality is an inversion of not only God's intention for sexual relations, but also it defies man's nature that instinctively governs his behaviors. It's like an override that kicks in. He then goes on to to add, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. Verse 27. The term burned in the original language means to set on fire or to inflame. And here... Because it's in the passive voice, it's saying they are set on fire in their desire. This explains the inner inferno of homosexual lust. They become inflamed or consumed with an unnatural craving to be sexually involved with another man. I've worked with a number of homosexuals over the years. I've seen a number of them come to faith in Christ. Many of them haven't. But it's not uncommon for them to describe having over 100 partners in a year's time. Whereas with 
Lesbians, the females typically average only one or two in a year. And for those of us that are not enslaved by this sin, it's hard for us to comprehend what they experience. I mean, this is absolutely life-dominating for them. I've talked with converted homosexuals who describe the bondage that they've endured over the years. I remember one man telling me how every waking moment of his life he was consumed with the next encounter. And they describe scenarios with individuals as well as with group encounters that are so unspeakably bizarre and so grossly reprehensible that I wish I had never even heard them. And certainly I would never describe them in public. Things that are absolutely demonic. There's no other way of describing it and explaining it. You ask the ER doctors and nurses what they endure. And you want to tell me that this is just natural? That people are just born this way? Oh, what a lie that is. And sadly, but not surprisingly, the unsanitary activities in disease-ridden places not only transmit bacteria and parasites, and facilitate the spread of hepatitis B, HIV, and syphilis, and other blood-borne diseases. But this activity also tears rectal tissues. Even Josephus, the ancient historian, described what went on amongst the Romans. And he stated that they, quote, abused themselves with sodomitical practices. If we go back to Genesis 19 in the Old Testament, we have an example of the kind of burning, the sexual bondage that these people are in. You will recall the account of the two angels that came to visit Lot in the city of Sodom. On seeing the strangers, we read, the men of the city, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. And you will recall the story how they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break, breaking down his door. But the angels reached out their hands and brought Lot in, kind of rescued him from them, shut the door, and then they struck the Sodomites with blindness who were at the doorway, both small and great, the text says, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Absolutely inconceivable. This is amazing. Their lust was so strong that despite the supernatural blinding, they still exhausted themselves to somehow find the doorway to break in and have their way with the strangers. The text goes on to say that this sin was so great in Sodom and Gomorrah that God rained down fire and brimstone out of heaven upon them and utterly destroyed them. You can see the remnants of that today around the Dead Sea. In fact, unlike any other place in the world, deposits of sulfur or brimstone, these little capsules, look like little marbles with a purity of 98% can still be found in the layers of ash in that region. 
And I might also add from Genesis 19 onward, the word sodomy is used to describe homosexuality. Paul went on to describe this perversion in Romans 1, back to our text in verse 27, saying, Men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts. Indecent acts, the term means that which is unseemly or shameful. The old King James Version says, males with males perpetrating shamelessness. And how sad it is to see people in this bondage, how they call themselves gay when nothing is even remotely gay about what they are experiencing. I've talked with them before. I've had them weep in front of me as they express what's going on in their life and and they're filled with with shame and regret and frustration and helplessness and hopelessness and even rage and yet their community is constantly promoting gay pride it is so sad this is also reminiscent of the homosexual rebellion that contributed to the societal collapse of ancient Judah and triggered God's judgment upon them. We read about it in Isaiah 3, beginning in verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, he says, for they have brought evil on themselves. Beloved, please understand, even as God has determined fixed, inviolable laws of physics to maintain the order of his physical universe, so too he has determined fixed, inviolable laws of morality to maintain his moral order. And when we violate those laws, eventually we will pay the consequences. The self-avenging nature of, of, of sexual perversion is evidence of what happens when a person violates God's law of morality. In this case, as Paul says in verse 27, men with men committing indecent or shameful acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Can there be any greater evidence of this than AIDS? In their excellent book, Transforming Homosexuality, What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change, Denny Burke and Heath Lambert offer additional insight into the many physical ways in which, under the moral arrangement or management of God, gross immorality triggers its own, quote, due penalty. Here's what they say. Homosexuality is dangerous. The Journal of the American Medical Association reports that male homosexuals experience a 4,000% risk, high risk of anal cancer than the rest of the population. Many homosexuals with long, a long-term partner have, on average, 30 years shorter than heterosexual men. These and other factors are why homosexual men are at such high risk for emotional and spiritual problems. They went on to say, quote, this was the conclusion of J. Michael Bailey, 
concerning several studies on homosexuality. These studies contain arguably the best published data on the association between homosexuality and psychopathology and both converge on the same unhappy conclusion. And here it is. Homosexual people are at a substantially higher risk for some forms of emotional problems, including suicidality, major depression, and anxiety disorder and conduct disorder. According to the Family Research Institute, the median age of death for homosexuals was virtually the same nationwide, and overall about 2% survived to old age. If AIDS was the listed cause of death, the median age was 39. For the 829 gays who were listed as dying of something other than AIDS, the median age of death was 42 and 9% died old. The 163 lesbians had a median age of death of 44 and 20% died old. They go on to say even when AIDS was apparently not involved, homosexuals frequently met an early demise. 3% of gays died violently. They were 116 times more apt to be murdered compared to national murder rates, much more apt to commit suicide, and had high traffic accident death rates. Heart attacks, cancer, and liver failure were exceptionally common. 18% of lesbians died of murder, suicide, or accidents, a rate 456 times higher than that of white females aged 25 to 44. Age distributions of samples of homosexuals in the scientific literature from 1858 to 1997 suggest a similarly shortened lifespan. Finally, they say another study looked at multiple lines of evidence, including more recent U.S. obituaries and patterns of homosexual partnership in Scandinavia. Again, finding that homosexual behavior was associated with a shortening of life of probably two decades. Beloved, it's obvious to any unbiased observer that the inevitable temporal penalty of, homosexually, of homosexuality is the consequence of the perversion itself. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Oh, but the gospel changes all of that. When they come to Christ in repentant faith and experience the transforming power of regeneration, these things are reversed. Otherwise, they will experience the eternal consequences of refusing to come to repentant faith in Christ. Again, Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, they are, those that live that way, are undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Once again, beloved, please understand what the Word of God says. When men and women reject God, God rejects them and gives them over, first of all, to sordid immorality and then to shameless homosexuality, which leads to the final stage of shocking depravity, a disposition of godless corruption. 
the correlation in verses 24 and 26 between man's arrogant rejection of God and God's righteous rejection of man is stated so clearly in verse 28. He says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. We can go to Job chapter 21, beginning in verse 14. And there we understand what it is to have a depraved mind. It speaks of someone that shakes their fist in God's face and says, quote, Depart from us. We do not even desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what would we gain, gain if we entreat him? Now, Paul's use of the term depraved here, giving someone over to a depraved mind, means unapproved or worthless, a useless mind. It was originally used to describe worthless metals that were rejected by refiners because of their impurity. And in this context, the phrase highlights a frightening reality. And here's what it is. When a man or a woman ignores all of the evidence of nature pointing pointing to our Creator and all of the evidence of conscience pointing to their need to come to faith in Christ and to be reconciled to a holy God, when they ignore all of those things and when they refuse, therefore, to approve of God, what will he do? He will give them over to an unapproved mind that is utterly worthless. Again, a disposition of godless corruption. Our culture's obsession with transgenderism is a prime example of a depraved mind. Paul goes on to give a representative sample in verses 29 through 31, describing the wickedness that characterizes the people that are given over to idolatry and the concomitant immorality associated with it. He describes them in verse 29 as being filled with, meaning they are, they are wholly given over to the following. All unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Now, I know some are hearing all of this and saying, oh my, how unloving. What a homophobe. What a bigot. What a horrible thing to present all of these Bible passages. Oh, but dear friend, please understand, these are the words that God has given to us to reveal to us His will. He wants us to obey these things for our good and for His glory. Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8. He says, but we know that the law is good, meaning it's useful. because it reveals the holy nature and righteous standards of God. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, to expose our sin and drive us to repentant faith in Christ. 
he goes on to say, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners. That speaks of me and you prior to knowing Christ. And even now, now that I know Christ, I still sin, and so do you. We're just thankful that we are forgiven and that we have the Spirit of God dwelling within us to help us restrain our sin. He goes on to say, For the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. Folks, this is why the gospel is such incredibly good news. God has promised not only to forgive sin, but to radically transform the inner man, to give us a new nature when we come to Christ in repentant faith. This is the miracle of regeneration, which refers to that supernatural, instantaneous impartation of spiritual life to the spiritually dead. It is that spirit-wrought transformation in the soul that causes an individual to see the dreadful consequences of his or her sinful heart and causes that person to cry out for undeserved mercy and grace so that they can experience the love of Christ and joyfully serve Him. It was early on a Sunday morning when the phone rang, quite early. And in a pastor's house, typically when the phone rings early, it's bad news. This happened to be good news. My dear wife Nancy picked up the phone and I could see her grimace a bit because she couldn't understand the voice and I could hear it a little bit. And she said, just a moment and and I'll let you talk with my husband. And a young man came on with a very strong Scottish accent. And he called to thank me for preaching the word because some two years prior, he had listened to my expositions on the book of Revelation. And in that context, the Spirit of God brought conviction to his heart, and he was saved by God's grace. And he went on to say that he was saved out of the homosexual escort business in London. He went on to describe what God was doing in his life. He was now living back in Scotland in Bible school. He said, my desires are gradually changing. And he says, uh, you know, he talked about how that the, the Lord was ministering to him and how he was growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ. And he was just celebrating all that God had done. You know, for some people, those desires change very quickly. For others, it takes time. Whether it's the sin of homosexuality or, or the sin of, of fornication, pornography, any of those things. It depends upon the person. But the point is, when we come to true saving faith in Christ, there is a great work of the Spirit that occurs within the heart that changes a person. And the desires as well begin to change. He was certainly an example of those, according to Ephesians 2, 3, who formerly lived in the lusts of their flesh 
indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of of wrath. Yet the Spirit made them alive together with Christ. Again, at the moment of the new birth, we are made new creatures in Christ. And that sets into motion this process of sanctification that will ultimately produce Christ-likeness. And for this reason, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things come. And solely by the power of God's grace, through His mercy, through His Spirit, through His Word, He plants within us new desires, new loves and passions and inclinations and beliefs and values so that we are able to cleanse ourselves, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7.1, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And yet today, dear friends, we are watching Satan's forces criminalize righteousness and legalize unrighteousness. Beloved, we simply cannot bow the knee to Baal. We simply cannot do that, and we will not do that. We must stand firm in the power of the Spirit and be uncompromising in our gospel proclamation because the eternal destiny of men and women's souls depend upon that. And by God's sovereign grace, He uses us as instruments of righteousness to present these truths to those that he will save. The good news is we are fighting a battle that has already been won. In fact, speaking of the new heaven and new earth in Revelation 21, beginning of verse 7, we read, He who overcomes, referring to those who exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But, he says, For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. May we all be diligent to pray for those who are in sexual bondage. And there are many in our culture And may we also go before the Lord our God and thank Him, knowing that we are debtors to His grace because were it not for the transforming power of the Spirit within us, we would be there with them. Let's pray as well that we might walk by the Spirit so we won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And let's especially pray for the ungodly who are in authority over us that we might be instruments of righteousness in their lives, that God in His grace would bring conviction to their heart as well, and that God would protect His church from these people. So let's commit it all to Him and rejoice in His saving grace and in all things give Christ the preeminence. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. It is penetrating. It is powerful. 
It cuts to the very core of who we are. And I know that it will either harden or soften hearts. Lord, I beg that it will be the latter and not the former. That you will use your word to bring saving faith to everyone within the sound of my voice. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your mercy towards all sinners. Because were it not for your sovereign grace, none of us would be saved. So we thank you. We give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.